0: Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. If you're anything like me, then social media is a prominent part of your day. Whether it's for your profession or you're using it for personal reasons. Regardless, if you were on the internet in 2018, there's no way you missed the memes and videos of that man with the crazy hair representing himself in his own murder trial. Now, for the majority of us, it was a good laugh watching him shout out the jurors. But buckle up, Conjurers. Because the true story behind those internet memes is about to leave you enraged. Riverview, Florida is a quiet town known for suburban families and nature preserves. However, on March 18th of 2018, just past midnight, one Riverview neighborhood woke up to what seemed to be the sounds of a domestic dispute happening outside of their homes. One man named James just so happened to be visiting his fiance that night when he heard the outcry of a woman followed by pounding on his fiance's door. At this time, his fiance's daughter was home, so he told them to stay inside while he went out to investigate. When he opened the door, he didn't immediately see anyone. That was until he turned his head and noticed six feet away a woman was laying on the walkway on another residence surrounded in what appeared to be a pool of blood. The outside of the house was covered in blood splatter, and blood stained the path that led to her. As James got closer, he noticed a man standing over her with a weapon, continuing to beat her. That's when James realized the woman lying lifeless on the ground was his fiancé's neighbor, Kenyatta. The man beating her quickly retreated around the side of her home, and James went to stay with Kenyatta's body. Lying next to her body was the broken handgun that had just been used to crush her skull. He begins shouting to his neighbors to stay inside and call 911. During the 911 call, you can hear Ronnie III in the background shouting over and over, "She tried to kill me! She tried to kill me!" Jeez, that's horrible. We're off to a crazy start on this one. Oh yeah, dude, and it only gets worse. Was that neighbor the first one to call 911? That wasn't the first 911 call made that night. In fact, the very first call came from the home of Kenyatta that she shared with her two children made by Kenyatta herself at 1143 p.m. I listened to the call myself, and it's important to inform you that this is the last time Kenyatta would be heard alive. If you want to hear the call yourself, you can find it on YouTube on an account called in this is real, Tootsie So Dope. I'll summarize it for you, though. After being beaten and shot by her boyfriend, Ronnie, in order to call 911, Kenyatta had to run into the room of their daughter, 9-year-old Renivia. Something you should know about Renivia was that she was disabled, suffering from autism and cerebral palsy. This kept her from verbally communicating her words and feelings. During the call, you can hear Kenyatta telling the dispatcher, I've been shot. Please help me. I've been shot. He shot me. You could hear Ronnie shouting in the background, Allah Akbar, which means God is the greatest. Kenyatta continued to plead for her life, telling Ronnie, I'm sorry, I'm so sorry, and I trust you, over and over again. You can then hear her screaming, not only for her life, but for her daughters as well. It was clear by the end of the call, Kenyatta had lost the battle she was in with Ronnie. Eight minutes later, another 911 call came through from inside of the home, but this time it was Ronnie. During this call, Ronnie was claiming to have been attacked by white demons and accused Kenyatta, who he addressed as Kiki, of trying to kill him. He then admitted to killing her and gave the dispatcher Kenyatta's address. What he didn't tell the dispatcher was that in the moments between Kenyatta's 911 call and his, he had not only murdered his girlfriend, but his daughter as well, before stabbing his 8-year-old son and setting the house on fire.
1: If Kenyatta called 911 at 1143 when the attack started and the neighbor called 911 shortly after midnight, I'd like to know where the police were while he was murdering his entire family and setting fire to
0: their house. Right. Like, I feel like by the time the neighbors found her, they should have been there already.
1: I agree. I'm assuming they showed up eventually. Did anyone survive that?
0: (sighs) Well, firefighters arrived on the scene shortly after, and they could see that the house was filled with smoke. It appeared that one child that lived in the home had made his way outside and found safety with his neighbor. As they entered the building, they not only were overwhelmed with the amount of smoke causing them to crawl on their knees to avoid inhaling it, but also had to move with caution because they were slipping on blood. Hoping to find someone alive, the firefighters went from room to room. What they found was much worse. They found a mutilated Ronivia that appeared to have been stabbed with an axe and set on fire. Even though they knew it was a nine-year-old child, she was beyond recognition at that point. According to the firefighters on the scene, everything had been set on fire in that home, including the closed walls and ceiling. Little Renivia's injuries included a severed and broken neck, punctured voice box, broken jaw, and a beaten and fractured head. Even after all of that, she was said to have only reached comatosis and died when she was set on fire. Little Renivia ultimately died from homicidal violence. What makes matters worse is Ronnie made her little brother and his eight-year-old son go to the garage to get the axe that would assist in his sister's death before turning on his son and stabbing him. Ronnie Jr. was rushed to the hospital for his injuries, and Ronnie III surrendered to the police after being hit with a stun gun.
1: I will never understand how a parent can do something like that
0: to their children. It's sickening. Look, the saying is, I would kill for my children, not I would kill my children. (laughs) Oh my god, Sam.
1: But the son escaped, right? So what did he have to say about what happened
0: that night? After Ronnie Jr. was stabilized for his injuries, he was able to tell the police the recap of that night. They desperately needed to figure out how this tragedy came about. Ronnie Jr. told them that he could hear his mother and father arguing, so he went to see what was going on. This is where he saw his father holding a shotgun and his mother running into his sister's room to hide in the closet. Ronnie then turned to his son and asked him to walk around and say the words, Allah Akbar, and forced him to shoot his own mother. He grabbed his son's hand and forced him to hold the shotgun that pointed at a terrified Kenyatta, who was at this point on the phone with the 911 dispatcher. We don't know if the bullet actually hit Kenyatta, but we do know that at this time, she said that she had been shot in the arm to the dispatcher. Ronnie Jr. then shared that his father chased his mother out of the house and brutally beat her with a handgun. Prosecution shared that she was beaten so hard the shotgun broke into pieces and the barrel was bit. And this is when the neighbors discovered Kenyatta's body. After beating Kenyatta to death, Ronnie made his way back into the home and asked his son to go grab the axe out of the garage. Ronnie Jr. did as he was told. Upon returning with the axe, Ronnie dragged his helpless 9 year old daughter out of her room into the master bedroom before beating her with an axe in front of Ronnie Jr. Due to her medical conditions, she had no chance of defending herself. After viciously attacking Renivia, Ronnie set a tissue on fire and reached over to Ronnie Jr. in an attempt to set him on fire, but he ran to the kitchen to get away. Ronnie eventually caught up with him, though, and stabbed him before continuing to set the house on fire. Ronnie Jr. somehow managed to flee the house even after being severely wounded and was found by a neighbor.
1: Oh my god, that poor kid. Ronnie didn't just brutally try to kill his wife and kids. He made his son help. That is psychological torture on top of all of it.
0: That is something he will never be able to forget. And it's going to take a lot of therapy and outside love to get Ronnie Jr. through that.
1: I can't even imagine.
0: Staff will dive deeper into what this family was like and what may have led to that brutal attack after a short break.
1: Kenyatta Barron and Ronnie O'Neill had been in each other's lives for over nine years prior to the murders. They lived together on and off in the quiet middle-class neighborhood during that time. Ronnie described himself as a truly devoted father and boyfriend during those years. Not everyone agreed with their relationship, though. According to Kenyatta's obituary on Integrity Funeral Services, Kenyatta Barron was born November 13, 1984, in Hillsborough County to Booker T. Ray and Carrie Barron. She attended schools in Hillsborough County and continued her education at Hillsborough Community College. She loved living her life for God and being a dedicated mother to her two children. She enjoyed going to school, writing poetry, and cooking. Ronnie III grew up in a stable home environment, being raised by his mother and had little to no contact with his biological father. Even though at the time of the murders he claimed to be a devoted Muslim, Ronnie originally grew up in a Baptist church, even enjoying being a member of their choir. Growing up, he was known to be very caring towards his family and friends. In high school, he was a fairly typical teenager, playing football, attending dances, and graduating on time with his class. After completing high school, he went on to join the Marines. Well, at least he tried to join the Marines. But he struggled with passing the entrance exam, so he let go of that dream and moved on to working as a truck driver. In his early 20s, he suddenly developed an interest in the Nation of Islam. During this time, he joined communities that advocated against gun violence and inner-city violence. He was even in a rap duo that mostly wrote uplifting lyrics and worshipping the Muslim god Allah. He performed and released these songs on YouTube.
0: So far, I can't find anything from his childhood that may trigger him to grow up and be a murderer. I mean, I know there's no exact formula to create a killer, but usually at least one thing is off early on.
1: You're right. A lot of killers have horrible childhoods with abusive parents and whatnot. But Ronnie's family was loving and kind, from what I can see. He didn't show any red flags in his early life at all.
0: How was he with his peers, though? Like, as he got older, did he take on any new interests other than the Nation of Islam?
1: Well, according to his social media pages, just like everyone else, he talked about and showcased things that were important to him, such as African-American communities, family values, God, and Allah. Though his page wasn't exactly alarming, there was something about him that came off as self-righteous. We have all known that person that discovers a new religion and suddenly they know everything, and whatever entity they worship gives them a certain power over the typical non-believer. Well, that was Ronnie. Though there was never an indication of mental illness for Ronnie, he did suffer trauma of his own growing up. At the age of 5 years old, he was raped repeatedly by teenagers who were supposed to be watching him and his brother. Also, in 2017, Ronnie was an innocent bystander when he was shot during a random drive-by shooting. In the hospital, Ronnie flatlined several times on the operating table. Kenyatta's mother had actually advised her daughter not to let Ronnie move into her house, but other friends and family wouldn't take him after he was released from the hospital. Kenyatta did, though, in an act of kindness towards the father of her children. By that time, Ronnie had left her a single mother. She owed him nothing, but took care of him anyway when no one else would. Kenyatta stayed by his side the entire time through his darkest
0: days, and he repaid her kindness with brutal violence. It sounds like everyone saw something in him that may have changed after that accident. But I don't blame her for allowing him to live there, though. She probably felt obligated to do so. It's hard
1: to see a change like that in someone you're that close to. He was the father of her children, and I agree it sounds like he was actually a good guy for the most part until that shooting
0: and his near-death experience. It changed him in the worst way. It definitely did, but enough about him and his childhood. Let's dig into this trial. Because I can't imagine it going any other way than him taking a plea deal and going straight to prison.
1: Ronnie's trial began on Monday, June 14th, 2021. He rejected his right to have an attorney appointed to him and decided to represent himself. In his opening statements, he claimed the prosecution's evidence was, and I quote, some of the most vicious, lying, fabricating, fictitious government you have ever seen. He then claimed, I might appear alone, but I am backed by a mighty God. He continued on with, by the time it's all said and done, you will see who is the mass murderers in Tampa Bay.
0: And who might that be, Ronnie?
1: (laughs) (laughs) During trial, Ronnie III admitted to killing then-girlfriend Kenyatta, but only because he accused her of attacking their children. He claimed it was self-defense. He even went as far as to blame the police for tampering with the evidence and fabricating it. Even the one remaining family member who lived to tell the story of what happened in that house said he witnessed his father beat his mother to death. Ronnie claims his son heard
0: and saw nothing. Why is it that the men that turn out to be family annihilators always start with, I only hurt her because she was harming the kids? but then end up also killing the kids as well immediately after. Like, make it make sense.
1: It's insanity. Why do you think anyone will believe that? You don't protect your kids by finishing off what your wife allegedly started and the disposing of their bodies. That isn't the natural response to a situation if it really went the way they say it does.
0: And he has the nerve to speak for his son after trying to kill him and killing his mother and his sister right in front of him.
1: Well, on June 16th, 2021, now 11 years old, Ronnie Jr. took the stand during his father's trial. For whatever sick reason, his father, the man that abused him and took his mother and sister's life, was allowed to cross-examine him. Ronnie opened his cross-examination of his son by exchanging pleasantries. Sham, can you help me out by reading Ronnie Sr.'s questions to his own son? Sure.
0: I'll do my best to read it like Ronnie Sr. sounded in court. Okay all right let's get started here we go how you doing ronnie good it's good to see you man good to see you too
1: ronnie continued on doing his best to try and expose inconsistencies between what ronnie jr told police and what he was saying in court to his father's face did you see me beat your mom no did you see me shoot your mom no after this exchange ronnie refuted his son's testimony He began confronting him more aggressively, accusing him of lying because his testimony didn't match his earlier statements. Shouting at him during the cross-examination, he asked Ronnie Jr., Did I hurt you the night of the incident? To which Ronnie Jr. responded back in confidence, Yes, you stabbed me. He sure did. (laughs) Five days later, on June 22, 2021, at 7 p.m., Ronnie O'Neill sat quietly in the courtroom and gave no reaction as the verdict was read after only one hour of deliberation. The jury found him guilty of the brutal murders of his 11-year-old daughter and the mother of his children in 2018. Ronnie was charged with two counts of first-degree murder and one count of attempted first-degree murder. He was also found guilty of arson, two counts of aggravated child abuse, and resisting an officer without violence. He was sentenced to three life terms plus 60 years.
0: Well, he deserves all of that and more.
1: It must have been so awful for Ronnie Jr. to have to face his dad in court like that. Then to have him scream at him and accuse him of lying. He should have never been allowed near his victim. Ronnie definitely deserved what he got at sentencing.
0: So was that the end of the trial?
1: Technically, yes, but he wasn't done. After his sentencing, Ronnie spoke at length to family members in the courtroom, refusing to face the judge even after she ordered him to do so. He said he would have preferred
0: the death penalty over life in prison, but was saved by the one true God. Okay, so we're still doing this? Like, Ronnie, I think your version of God has done enough at this point, so please sit down somewhere. (laughs) What he
1: said to Kenyatta's family was, and I quote... I will say I'm sorry for your loss. Everybody wants to point fingers and play the blame game without knowing actual facts. Everybody wants to talk justice without giving it. Kenyatta's mother responded with, and I quote, I wish you would have gotten the death penalty. Every action has a reaction, and the reaction to your actions is going to be sitting in your prison cell for the rest of your life with your thoughts. Which was followed up by her sister, Desada Baron, telling him, and I quote, I don't feel sorry for you.
0: You were sent to kill, steal, and destroy like the devil himself, and that's what you are. Okay, well, in my opinion, Ronnie, I think we got all of the facts during this court case. (laughs) (laughs) And so I don't blame her family's reactions, because I would be infuriated, especially because he still refuses to take responsibility. His comments to her family were insulting. They have every right to hate him. Where's this case now? I don't really care much to know where Ronnie Sr. is, as long as he's still in jail. But how is the surviving family member doing?
1: Ronnie Jr. doesn't want his mother and sister to be remembered for only what occurred that night. He told Fox News the murders and trial were a brief moment in time for him. He went on to say how good of a mother Kenyatta was, and in true kid fashion, stated they did a lot of things together. She pushed him on the swings and always made him some good wings.
0: Oh, that's such a cute kid statement. Like, of course, he remembers the little things, like his mama fixing his favorite food. I love it. He seems like such a sweet, innocent little boy. And she seemed like a mother who truly loved her babies.
1: Absolutely. At the time, Kenyatta had gone back to school and enrolled in the Hillsborough Community College. Even with a life of her own, she still found time to cook her children's favorite meals and play football with her son in the front yard. As for Ronnie's sister, Renivia, even though she was disabled and couldn't speak, Ronnie Jr. made sure to learn sign language to communicate with her. According to her classmates and teachers, she was recognized for always having a positive attitude and was an all-around terrific kid. One detective in this case had little to do with the criminal investigation, but he was a part of the homicide team. Detective Mike Blair went to visit Ronnie Jr. in the hospital and even brought him souvenirs from his favorite team, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. During one of his visits, Ronnie Jr. had a sweet request for the detective. He grabbed Detective Blair by the hand and asked, Could you watch a movie with me? The request clearly pulled at the detective's heartstrings. That night, not only did he have to return to work, but he also had a date with his wife. He ended up calling his wife and asking if she would mind skipping date night, and they both watched a movie with Ronnie instead. It didn't take long for them to know that they wanted to take Ronnie home with them, even if they already had a full house with five children of their own. It did take a little time to get him there, but eventually Mike and Danielle Blair had and their kids welcomed Ronnie into their hearts and their home without hesitation. To the Blairs, Ronnie was one of the biggest blessings. From the time they met him, they spent every day praying he would soon become a permanent part of their lives. Now Ronnie has a new home, five new siblings that have accepted him into their lives, and new loving parents who have formally adopted him. In the words of Ronnie Jr., they are really nice people. They are the best mom and dad, and they really take care of me.
0: There is no one else better than them. During Ronnie's trial, he said, and I quote, Tell it like it is if you're going to tell it. And well, Ronnie, that's exactly what we did today. We told the truth. We told Kenyatta, Renivia, and Ronnie Jr.'s truth. When religion and mental health cross paths, it can be a dangerous situation. Once you start believing that the entity you're worshiping is demanding you harm innocent people, it's time to reevaluate your spiritual path. Kenyatta, Renivia, and Ronnie Jr. didn't deserve for their father and spouse to choose his religion over them. Instead of just leaving that night, he chose to annihilate his family altogether. We know Kenyatta fought for herself and her children's lives until the end, and I know she would be smiling down if she knew how loved her son is now by a family whose hearts he went over instantly.
1: There is an epidemic of personal and social issues including addiction, chronic disease, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and more whose roots can all be traced to trauma, adverse childhood experiences, chronic stress, and ultimately nervous system dysregulation. In the last number of years, there have been groundbreaking research in neuroscience that has fundamentally changed our understanding of how trauma can impact individuals psychologically, physiologically, emotionally, and socially. The Trauma Foundation is focused on making this work more accessible by developing and directly supporting programs, initiatives, and research focused on trauma recovery. They do this by treatment, training, clinician scholarship programs, and research. To donate to this organization or seek help, go to thetraumafoundation.org.
0: To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Steph and Sham. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Alina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Crime and conjure Podcast for our question of the week. And another place to find us now is at Crime and conjure Podcast on TikTok. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Our Contra Tip of the Week is Signs of Toxic Religion. Religion gives people something to believe in. It provides a sense of structure and typically offers a group of people to connect over similar beliefs. These facets can have a large positive impact on mental health. Research suggests that spirituality reduces suicide rates, alcoholism, and drug use. However, when religion becomes a means to avoid or control life, it becomes toxic. Those who possess a toxic faith have stepped across the line from a balanced perspective of God to an unbalanced faith in a weak, powerless, or uncaring God. They seek a God to fix every mess, prevent every hurt, and mend every conflict. Everyone has the right to believe in whatever brings them comfort and peace, but you also have the responsibility to make sure you're not bringing destruction to those around you while doing so.
1: Absolutely. Spirituality and religion can be so beneficial. But when any religion is twisted and taken too far, it can become toxic and dangerous. No matter what someone believes, no one has the right to impose their beliefs on anyone else or harm someone in the name of their God. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers.